Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are going to discuss Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, and we're in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12 of Book 1 today, which uh, continues the idea of balancing the Word and the Spirit, and then goes into a section which kind of previews Calvin's discussion on the Trinity, and really talks about idolatry images, and it's kind of a, a way to kind of, an, almost an apophatic way of approaching God by not mm -hmm. creating images of him. Uh, if, if I'm allowed to use that language of John Kelvin. Well, yeah, we, you like, got to tell us what apophatic means now, man. Uh, basically saying what God is not, uh, to, yeah. know, to know something about him. And in this case, God is not something you can portray by an image, is what Kelvin will, will argue. So I know, Ian, you had a quote that you wanted to open us up uh, by reading and then talk a little bit about the libertine. So I'll hand it over to you to, to do that. Yeah, so Calvin here in, uh, in 1.9 is going to, you know, continue on with his discussion of this balance between word and spirit that we were looking at last uh, in our last discussion. So there um, we were getting into the whole question of knowledge of God as, as creator and how we know God as such through the scriptures. And, uh, and so there's this big discussion of the authority of scripture and the way this, the, this the role of the spirit in, re, in relation to that. And so then he kind of picks up on this continuing on in, in, uh, in chapter nine here, and there's a great quote that he has that I thought would just be worth kind of riffing off of in terms of this balance between word and spirit that's so integral. And uh, this is going to come from section three. I'm going to read it in the beverage translation. I like the beverage translation better for its readability. It's just it's nicer um, than the McNeil Battles. It's just that McNeil Battles is the better one to really go with. But um, for, for the sake of our, our audience's ears, here's uh, uh, the beverage. So this is, uh, this is from uh, section three here where he says that uh, the Lord has intertwined the truth of his word and his spirit in such a way that we respect the word when the spirit illumines it, enabling us to seek God's face. And we welcome the spirit with no risk of error when we recognize him in his word. These are the facts. God did not put his word in front of men to make a sudden splash, intending to get rid of it the moment the spirit arrived. He employed the same spirit by whom he had given the word to complete his work by the effect of confirming the word. And so what he's trying to do is he's kind of combating two sides. Uh, one that wants to just entirely rely upon the spirit to get rid of uh, the word. And, uh, and then the opposite, uh, not so much kind of too hard of a focus on the word, but like looking at kind of like concrete things that he's going to get into when it comes mm. to this idolatry issue with Roman Roman Catholic use of images. Very, very telling here that he says that, um, you know, that's the word that enables us to see God's face. And so that's going to lead us into these next chapters where it's going to talk about how you can't make images because those are going to be insufficient. Really, the only way to get it at seeing God himself is through his word. And so he's, he's kind of hedging off these two, two extremes. And the one extreme that he has in mind uh, when it comes to chapter nine here is this kind of weird group of people called the Libertines. Hmm. And we're going to read about Calvin and his life. They crop up here and there, but we kind of don't know a whole lot about this kind of strange group. Some, some people in his, in Calvin's day, kind of lump the Anabaptists, the Libertines, and some other kind of radical groups together. Uh, Calvin takes specific aim against these groups differently. So there's an idea that Calvin fo ha ha makes distinctions between, you know, the Anabaptists and Libertines. The Libertines are like this kind of weird weird group of people they're like um sort of mystical they believe in in like the idea of the world soul as this kind of like divine being that we're all part of together there's a kind of pantheistic kind of leaning in, in this and uh 
and uh, and so then there that that kind of mysticism as we kind of engage in the in the world soul as it were is kind of this why Calvin's wanting to stress the objectivity of the word that we don't just go with some weird concept of spirit that lighten enlightens us or illuminates us um, but rather that we stick to something that has objectivity so he's gonna he's gonna say listen like there has to be this balance. It's not like God gives us the word until the spirit comes. We don't need the word anymore. Actually, the word is given to us by the spirit's inspiration. And to get rid of the word is actually to get rid of the spirit too. So if you really want the spirit, you need to keep the word in mind. So that, that's kind of like what, what he's doing with this right. part, I think. And on what you just said, there's a, actually a sentence I remembered as you were talking. I just want to read because I think it actually adds to what you're saying. It's in the same section. So it's chapter nine, section three at the bottom of, of page 95 in the battles. He says, rather, he sent down the same spirit by whose power he had dispensed the word to complete his work by the efficacious confirmation of the word. And I, I think it's an interesting interplay um, to the, how the Holy Spirit works. He gives the word and perfects the word, completes, confirms the word. And there's a very word-focused connection between word and spirit that Kelvin has. So it goes really... back to that whole self-authentication stuff that he was talking yeah. about. We, we dealt with exactly. last time, you know, so it's like the spirit gives us the word. And so therein it's invested with God's own authority. Remember he says it's, it's God's own hallowed speech. Mm. And yet at the same time, the word confirms that it's from the spirit. <laughs> it's like this dialectic between word and spirit. It's interesting too, that word in the, the sentence prior to what I read is going to be Jesus because he says, God did not bring forth his word among men for the sake of a momentary display, intending at the coming of a spirit to abolish it. It seems like he means the word incarnate there. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I'm wondering still. I think it might still be in reference to canonical text at that point. Okay, but but there is such a huge connection between written word and incarnate word. Yeah, Um, Maybe I'll get to that a bit later then. I just thought that was yeah. kind of an interesting kind of interplay of how he uses the spirit there. Okay, so we have yeah. libertines, libertines who are kind of living a sort of purely spiritual faith that does not is not tied down by a biblical or inspired text. Yeah. So he's kind of throwing shade at that group. Um, yeah, they, but, they had really cropped up in the in the low countries or okay. what we now know as the Netherlands. Hmm. And uh, and so the church the, the Orthodox Protestant churches there kind of had reached out to Calvin for help, um, you know, in terms of being able to, to deal with these particular people. Hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, he's, he's like kind of really going against the kind of like mysticism. Um, you know, Calvin writes a whole treatise against these libertines kind of hammering on these sorts of issues. So hmm. it was, it, the term libertine was kind of like an insulting term. They wouldn't have used it. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, yeah. So he has that now, but in this same section, then he kind of transitions and points his crosshairs at another group. I mean, this is a really polemical section of the Institutes because it's the Libertines and then it, next, it's really the Roman Catholic Church and it's using yeah, images. Yeah, and at length. And at quite like, he does mention the Eastern Orthodox briefly, but that's not really his target. He just mentions an aspect of their teaching, but yeah, the Catholics. So one thing to, we were talking about this to realize with Kelvin is that he grew up in France in a Roman Catholic country. I uh, was very invested in the religious facets of the Roman Catholic Church. He saw it all from the inside, kind of like Luther did probably. And he noted what people were actually doing, uh, despite some of the, uh, the language that Catholic, the Catholic theologians were saying about it. So they would make these kind of fine distinctions between different kinds of worship, veneration, worship, etc. 
But he's saying, look, I mean, if you, you can say all that, but at one point he says it's a bit of a lie because what people actually do is, I think, pay worship. I can't remember. I, can't, I wish I could find that quote, but he calls that defense a lie. So he's kind of laying his crosshairs against the Roman Catholics. So, uh, so why does he, why do you think he does it? Why is he so upset about images in the church and us paying some sort of uh, veneration or worship to these images? What's What's behind all this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I call myself a, a card-carrying Calvinist. And I'm, you know, quite happy to, to do so. I mean, if, if you if you could actually see on the wall right behind my laptop right now, I got a, an image of Calvin, ironically, <laughs> hanging down, right. looking at me, keeping me orthodox. Um, but this is, this is one of these areas where I'm a little bit more iffy with Calvin in some of his argumentation. And my suspicion is, and I need to kind of research this a little bit more, is that he's, he's going to react really strongly against any kind of use of divine images. Um, I, I think he's reacting so strongly because, as you say, that kind of growing up that he had, right? His dad worked in a cathedral. Um, his mother would take him around. He tells us, you know, to, to see all the latest, you know, relics coming through or to kiss whatever image, you know, images or statues or any of these kinds of things. So I think he very much felt um, you know, the, the weight of having been so idolatrous and superstitious. And, and so now he's kind of like coming out very strongly. It's, he's very, it's very different here than what's going on with Luther in Germany, right? Where Luther's approach to reformation is, listen, in as much as we are already throwing the world on its head with this gospel, um, wherever we can uh, kind of maintain the status quo for the average church person, we need to do it. And so that's why the Lutheran Reformation can look so medieval. Whereas when you go into Calvin's Geneva, it's like Calvin's really being quite radical with his Reformation. And, uh, and so there's no use of images whatsoever. And here in this, like he gets really kind of like anti-art. Like I'm not, I'm not a big fan of Calvin's aesthetics uh, overall. And I think a large part of that is that background and then that kind of like almost an overcorrection that mm -hmm. he, he, not all of the, the reformed go along with him on this either. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a really, really curious kind of part of the institutes that, I mean, it gives you food for thought, but I'm not exactly convinced. So let's start then by saying, what do we see in what he's saying that seems very agreeable, helpful? What's, what's obviously right about his argument? Uh, for me, it's, it's going to be, that God in himself cannot be represented by any visible form because he's an invisible God. He appeared in fire. Don't make any images of me, that kind of thing. So is that, is that where you're going to? Yeah. I mean, absolutely agree that uh, the divine essence cannot be captured by any kind of human sign uh, or image. Um, be that words, uh, be that visible images uh, that we use in the arts and those kinds of things. I mean, it's just impossible. God is incomprehensible, right? That's, that's a, defining aspect of his attributes and so um to be able to try to comprehend god in any of these sorts of ways even when i say the word god in english i can't i cannot in any way right. that's why aquinas's uh, use of analogy is so important here analogical language um that we can we can use language truly about god in an and an, 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 an as an analog without right. having to say that we're going to capture we're not using him in terms of a univocal sense and so I just don't think Calvin is as helpful here because he's not maybe recognizing some of those distinctions. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he's bang on when he's saying things like, listen, you know, we have massive tendencies to idolatry. And so we need to put every sort of break in between us and the possibility of committing idolatry um, in, in, a, in our way. But 
just because a thing can be misused doesn't mean it shouldn't be used at all. And that, that's sort of where I'm at with Calvin on the issue of, of images. Yeah, on that latter point, I mean, he mentions in uh, chapter 11, section 8, he talks about the story of Rachel where she steals the idols from her father, I think hides it under the saddle or, or something to that effect. Yep. And he infers from this that uh, human beings are have a factory within them, within them to produce idols. He says, um, man's, uh, so man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And so there's a real sense in which we want to fashion and create things after our own image or after the image of four-footed animals or after the image of X, Y, and Z. And so I think he, he really does have some pastoral wisdom here. If, if we're a factory of idols, we need to be very careful that we're not creating something that replaces true and right worship, which is the kind of the key concern of the institutes or a key concern. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's very interesting, right? When you look, you know, um, at his uh, treatment of, Exodus 20. Let me just uh, find it here, um, where where he gives the where he gives the quote from the law, uh, from the Ten Commandments about not making an image. And uh, man, why is this not coming up here? I can't find it. Uh, oh, here we go. Um, so this is on this is on page 100. If you're using the Battles uh, edition here, um, so in uh, number what is it? Uh, I guess we're in uh, 11 uh, and, ver- and and section one. Uh, he says here that, um, you know, meanwhile, since this brute stupidity gripped the whole world to pant after visible figures of God and thus to form gods of wood, stone, gold, silver, and other dead and corruptible matter, we must cling to this principle. Uh, God's glory is corrupted by an impious falsehood whenever any form is attached to him. Therefore, in the law, after having claimed for himself alone the glory of deity, when he would teach what worship he approves or repudiates, God soon adds, and then he quotes Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness. It's very cur- curious to me that he does not go on to <laughs> quote the next part of that, of the, you know, of, of number of, of verse five of Exodus 20, where it says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God punishing. And then on and on. And it's like, you know, the point seems to be that Moses, that God through Moses is making is don't make a graven image in which you're going to worship right. me through it, right? And the issue is idolatry here, which Calvin's right about. and He's picking up on it. But here he seems to make it seem like, but don't make an image at all. But I'm wondering, even, you know, as we look at other instances of, of, of images maybe in the Old Covenant, that maybe Calvin's not reading this quite rightly. Well, I mean, I think there are some... I think he's, you know, there, there's a bit of a distinction I make, but I think one of the things we can look at are, is the, uh, the pole on which the serpent was hung. You're to look at Case it. And, point. and if I remember right, in Numbers, it actually talks about believing or trusting in that, uh, that's, uh, that symbol because it represents God's help and all that kind of stuff. For sure, it does. And Jesus himself uses that and says, I'm the fulfillment of this, this image. Uh, the tabernacle itself, there's many chapters and great details about how the, the tabernacle is being constructed for symbolic value. And so I, I even think the order of creation is heavily symbolic. It actually happens, but it's heavily symbolic. It's meant to show us something true. And so he, he doesn't really deny what I just said, but he almost doesn't give a place for it. Uh, near the right. end of the section, where I can't remember exactly where he says, well, look, there, there is some value in teaching a little bit. If you have like pictures of narratives and stories, you know, there's a little bit there. Uh, but that's that's about as far as you go. But if something is just beautiful, it's it's for pleasure, and therefore it can't teach you anything. It's very bizarre, actually. 
And I think um, most of us today, if you have kids, realize that we don't read stories to our three or four-year-old with only text, right? We have storybooks with, with the whole story. We have creation, Moses, Abraham, Jesus, the resurrection, pictures of heaven, and all the rest. I myself, I don't think that you should present the, the image of the Father because the Father is the invisible, or the Son is the, invis the visible representation of God. So that's my view. But I think it's totally valid to have pictures of Jesus in kids' storybooks. I think it's valid if, if your grandma has a picture of Jesus on the wall. I'm not going to go there and say, Grandma, you idolater. You have a picture of Jesus. I might say maybe you don't need a, a white, blue-eyed Jesus. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm not, that's not who I am. And, and I think the vast majority of people kind of recognize that. And I think maybe his, Calvin's polemics got a little ahead of him here. Because he's, he's, he is completely right to fight against the superstition of uh, veneration of these images in which you put your hope. Totally right. Yeah. So, so he's in a, in a very tricky place. And you have to think about like 16th century Europe is not like 21st century North America. There's right, we have wars, to be forgiving here. Wars, burnings, uh, it's just wild things happening. So it's very easy to be caught in polemics. But I think here he, he uh, kind of snared himself and went a little too far. It's interesting, though, that you know that he doesn't really get into the question of images of Jesus here, right? Oh, He's talking about you can't get at the essence like God in, say, um, through images, um, which we agree with. Um, he doesn't really get into the question. I, I actually have to kind of dig into this a little bit. And um, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, connected with, I've mentioned this before, the Davenant Institute and a kind of like a, a sister um, website to to Davenant is the Calvinist International. And a friend of mine, Eric Parker, has a, a, an article on this. We can link in the show notes on uh, Calvin's take on images of Jesus. And even though it's like, it doesn't really seem to go into that discussion, at least on the Institutes, it really only shows up in a sermon that he, he does in sermons in Deuteronomy, uh, where he preaches against uh, the idea of it. Um, and, uh, you know, he's saying things like he's God's eternal son in whom, he dwell, in whom dwells the fullness of the Godhead, uh, yea, even substantially. Uh, seeing it is said substantially, should we have portraitures and images whereby only the flesh may be represented? And so his argument is going to be, which is a common one from this period, is that if you try to make images of Jesus, then you're being an historian and you're only highlighting one of the um, the natures, the human nature, and not uh, the, the divine. But it's really weird because, you know, the you go back into the early church and you look at the iconoclast controversy, you look at the writings of John, John Damascus, and this was very much a Christological issue in that you should be able to make these images in order to actually truly understand the humanity. And that, you know, you're being anti-Gnostic in a way um, by and, and really kind of doing justice to the, to the two. I, I feel like because of my Christology, I would have to be on the side of the econoduals, the ones who are actually supporting the uses of images and of some, in some sense of Jesus. So I don't know, it's funny where it's Calvin really, comes. I think it's useful here. Let, let me read, uh, you're talking about the Seventh Ecumenical Council from 787. Um, let me read a line from it because I think it's useful to hear what they're actually trying to accomplish. And, and then I think it kind of grounds, oh, why you might be okay with what's going on. So here's a line, for example. Uh, to summarize, we declare that we defend free from any innovations all the written and unwritten ecclesiastical traditions that have been entrusted to us. One of these is the production of representational art. 
This is quite in harmony with the history of the spread of the gospel as it provides confirmation that the becoming man of the word of God was real and not just imaginary. And as it brings us a similar benefit, meaning their purpose, at least theologically their purpose in saying it's okay to have images of Christ was to confirm the reality that Jesus became a human man, a real and genuine human man. And the counter argument is if you can't do that, then what is he? Is he a third thing? Is because yeah. yeah, they agree. Yeah, you can't have an image of God, he's unseen. But if you say you can't have an image of the man Jesus Christ, then you have made him a third thing, a, 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 a you know, a god in a bod, which is heresy. Yeah. You can't yeah, it's like do a, that. It's like Apollinarianism, right? Apollinarianism, uh, or in the very and Eutychianism, uh, or sorry, yeah, Eutychianism. Sorry, sorry. Um, um, yeah, more. Well, I mean, I mean both in a sense, but nonetheless. It, uh, the point is, it's theologically acute and correct because the man, Jesus Christ, according to Paul, is the only mediator between humanity and God. Yeah. And so if you say you can't have a you know, picture of Jesus on your wall or in a book, and your argument is you can't have an image of God, that's Christological heresy. Right, <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> yeah, um, he's so mad, <laughs> you know? No, so I, but the I thing have is like Christology views. No. That said, if you're a conscience, if you're an individual and you're like, I don't want that still, I'm not saying sure. you're a I'm just saying Absolutely. at the technical, detailed, theological level, that was the argument. I'm not saying an individual today who, according to their evangelical conscience, doesn't feel right. It's fine. Yeah, go, go for it. Scripture does not command us or require us to have images of Christ at all. In fact, no. Calvin, I think, rightly says that ordained uh, images are baptism in the Lord's Supper and other things. I don't know yeah. what the other things are. It just as other things, but preaching would be, I guess, one of them. Um, and we yeah, should. No, I, th I, you know, the Lord's Supper to me is the premier, um, you know, image, if we want to put it that way, of of the gospel. And uh, and so God definitely provides us with those kinds of images that don't necessarily have to like, you know, point us in any way, kind of to the divine essence. But um, you know, so I'm in complete agreement here with Calvin. But I mean, you know, are you telling me that the, the, you know we can't can conjure an image in our mind of who Christ was and what he would have looked like. Like that's yeah. impossible. You cannot as a human, you cannot form an image in your mind. You have to do it because it's just what the way our minds work. So if I'm forming an image of what I think Jesus might've looked like in my mind, am I committing some sort of idolatry here? You know, I'm not, not, I'm not trying to. Um, yeah. And, and when we, you know, the, the, the disciples, when they're actually confronting him in his human nature, they're not seeing the divine nature, but just because they're talking to his human nature and, and conceiving of him that way, doesn't mean that they're committing idolatry, the idolatry of, or the, the heresy of Nestorianism by doing that either. And again, my point is like, you know, wor words are signs of, of Christ. When, when we use the word Trinity or Father or God, we're, we're communicating something of the divine essence. We know we can't capture it. Right. Um, so I, I just, I just think he's gone too far and I do not like the section on art and like, <laughs> and like that to me, was just very disappointing, you know, that you cannot, I mean, he actually uses the word pleasure, you know, like you can't, you can't pleasurably use art, uh, in, um, in section 12. I do not see there. what they can afford other than pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Does that afford pleasure? Like what's yeah. the point? They don't teach you anything. Man, I mean, it's it's just weird. And again, I, I can't help but think he's reacting as what he, what right, he would right. have had to have dealt with growing up with all with the right. use of religious art in, in idolatrous ways. 
but man, you tell me that you can't go into like, you know, Ely Cathedral and just be blown away by just the arc, the sheer beauty of the architecture that lifts you up. Wow. Um, that you, you can't see religious art and, and be moved by it religiously and take pleasure in, in, in what, what, what's aesthetically being communicated to us. I just don't seven. agree. It's one thing that is our, that's to look at the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Yeah. Uh, I just think, you know, the Old Testament is so full of this kind of idea that you should uh, build a heavily symbolic tabernacle, a beautiful temple, and, uh, sorry, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple is what David says. I, I do, th- I agree with you. I think God does use images to shed forth his beauty, that we can see him in it. I mean, if you look at the sky at nighttime outside of a city, and you look at the stars, and that is not yeah. an image of a, of, a, of a handprint of the vestiges of God. I don't know what it what else it is. And yeah, I mean, Calvin recognizes that. We saw that already when he was talking about how this the beauty is kind of like yeah. a mirror that points us to God and that sort of thing in creation. But, you know, here he's talking about like man-made art. And, man-made art, yeah. So, it's yeah, he says that. Go on, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, go for it. I was just saying it's interesting too. Like he's obviously talking about images of God and saints and... I think all of us would be like, well, we're not, this, the picture of the saints are not going to do anything. And yeah, it's pretty funny that uh, if you go to like Southern Baptist Church in the States, they'll have um, stained glass images of recent, you know, popular pastors and theologians. Yeah, I can't. And none of us really out. think that's wrong or bad. It's just the sense of honoring. If you go to any school or any church building, it's named after a founder. There's a picture of all the pastors in the generation. Like, what are yeah. those? <laughs> what are they if they're not the exact same thing that these are? But they don't have a divine essence that can't be comprehended, so we don't got to worry Well, no, but you're, you're saying, well, we're just here to honor the pastors of the past, to honor God's work in them. But that's literally, anyways. I think, so I just think we have to kind of bear and be careful, even in our kind of evangelical worship, of how we think of saints. I think it's important. Oh, sure. I myself am okay with those pictures, by the way. I just think sometimes, you know, the founding pastor becomes someone more important than the actual shepherd, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Oh, no, totally. It's, I think one area where he is, I don't want to bag on Calvin the whole time uh, mm. for this. I think where he's helpful is in, uh, in, in 12, uh, where is it here? In 12.2, where he gets into the distinction, the scholastic distinction between Latria and Dulia. Yep. And, uh, and I think that's helpful, you know, because what, what happened there, I mean, it really gets ex- explicit with Aquinas this distinction between types of worship or veneration. So like anything that's Latria is, is only to be a worship that's only to be directed towards the Holy Trinity. Mm. Whereas Dulia or Hyperdulia is this idea of a veneration that you can ascribe to those who have gone on. I think Calvin talks about, you know, the angels are to the dead. So this is where veneration of saints comes in and that kind of stuff. And I think he's really helpful in being able to kind of tear that down, especially when he, in, in, in section three, uh, where he kind of shows that, you know, Calvin in Galatians 4, 8, uh, you know, he says they exhibited Dulia towards beings that by nature were no gods. And um, and so he's saying, look, you know, that, that distinction is not really fitting here because Cal, or because Paul isn't using Dulia in that way. He's using it more in the way that they're using Latria. And so I thought that was really helpful, right? And there's no doubt that, you know, we cannot use images <laughs> to, you know, to, uh, to, to, in, in, to, 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 in an idolatrous way um, that's going to you know, misappropriate the use no. of what, what good religious image is for. Right. And I think we, we've, you know, we'd also agree with him that the, the best 
images are the ones ordained by God, namely baptism, the Lord's Supper. And I assume he means preaching because he, I can't find it at the second, but um, he cites Galatians 3. And when Paul says that, you know, Christ was portrayed as crucified before you, something to that effect. Yeah. Calvin identifies that in the preaching act. And therefore the preaching act is a portrayal of, of the gospel, the death of Christ. Yeah. And there's something really kind of poignant and powerful about the sign pointing to the reality, the sign, the words and preaching pointing to the reality to which they refer that is, uh, you know, moves in through us. So I think we all agree. Well, on and that I think that's, helpful. that's, that's remarkably helpful in the sense that, uh, you know, in our day, when we keep going on and on about, you know, we live in a visual image based culture. And so we have to be able to communicate the gospel with images, which I agree with. We do. Um, but not to the neglect of the word. And Calvin here is really like driving home that fact that like, listen, the word is actually remarkably important in terms of bringing these things, these, these, these things to us and a word and sacrament, right? We do actually have the visual in terms of the sacrament and we don't want to, we don't want to, to lessen the impact. We want to heighten the impact of both of those right. visual culture. And uh, I think a lot of evangelical churches, you know, skimp out on the preaching and the sacraments, <clears throat> emphasize you know movies drama and all that kind of stuff and i think this is where a, a heavy shot of calvin in the arm is going to be really important yeah yeah, he's, he inoculates us well i think yeah. he, he has a good uh, understanding at least here of the idea that, that what's tangible and sensible is actually transferred to the intellectual it's it's you're connected you're a body and soul there's there's an inseparable union so yeah yeah you you take lord's supper you have baptism you hear the word preached but through those those signs it actually is changing who you are in your inner person in your mind and I think what you're describing is we're, we're so trying to appeal to the senses, to the perception, that we forget that we actually have a deeper principle within us that needs to have an imprinted idea made upon it through yeah. the principle signs and images. Sorry, that was pretty abstract, but I think it's true. Oh, but it's true. Yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, it's a balance. It is a balance. And I think he, does, he overall does a good job here. So, okay, so in summary, uh, we, we like his major point. Roman Catholics, when they, when they worship, and at his time, especially, they're paying too much uh, veneration, too much honor to these images and statues. That's a major problem. We're, uh, we're a factory of idols. Pastorally, it's ruinous. At the same time, we think that maybe he uh, went overboard in his polemics. And it's okay to use images as teaching tools. It's okay to have an image of Christ. He doesn't mention that, but it's kind of somehow secretly in the background here. Uh, we're not really okay with venerating uh, saints, but we think it's okay to have pictures on the wall of old pastors and missionaries. I think that's fine. And we can honor them. There's no problem with that in terms of just that generic uh, remembrance kind of thing. Yeah, appreciating them. Appreciating them. Um, and we're really excited to see uh, what he's going to do after this apophatic section because uh, next week we're going to get into chapter 13, which is a long chapter. So in the reading plan, it, that's on, the only chapter we're covering next time. And it's really on, I think, the triune God entirely, or at least, yeah. So that'll be a really fun section we're going to get into is, is Trinitarian theology. Calvin has a pretty uh, interesting view of God that we really just understand him in his outward works primarily. And that speculations on his, in his inward character is sort of maybe interesting, but not the main focus of scripture. And so it shouldn't be ours yeah. either. Um, I think he's, he's mostly right. And I think it'll be helpful to kind of work through what he actually says to understand him better see what he means because um i think he also will affirm his simplicity and things like that later as well so yeah uh, so that's good i think that we're going to end here about half about half an hour in so thank you ian for this week and we'll look forward to talking to you next yeah. time. yeah and don't forget you can take pleasure with art
yeah, take pleasure with art. It's okay. Beauty for beauty's sake is a good thing. Absolutely. All art is useless, Oscar Wilde once said. That's how it should be. It's not for use, it's for pleasure. Reading theology is about opening your mind and heart to know and enjoy God and his creation. It's something you can pursue every day. For more resources, check out ca.thegospelcoalition.org. Subscribe to Into Theology on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And join us next time as we read great works of theology together.